Orland Bishop, welcome back to the New School. Yeah, thanks, Michael. In our first hour together, uh, we explored, um, uh, first of all, beginning with your work in Los Angeles at the Plaintree Multicultural Foundation, the work that you've been doing uh, with gang members in uh, central Los Angeles for over 20 years. Um, and that work is, is well known, and anyone interested in your work can find that on the internet and so forth. Um, but our real purpose was to record and, and witness together as a small group of us gathered here at the New School at Commonweal, your spiritual biography. And, and we followed you from your birth in British Guyana uh, in 1966, uh, childhood experiences with uh, opening uh, to an inner world. And then uh, uh, at age 15 in 1982 to high school in Brooklyn uh, and uh, on to uh, college in Los Angeles in 1984. Uh, and your uh, early work with the anti-apartheid movement in Los Angeles uh, and being hired uh, at Drew Medical Center as a medical outreach uh, uh, staff member to encourage uh, promising young people of color into allied health profession careers. So that was the sort of the gist of our, our first hour together. Um, in, uh, 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 obviously, this, the experience of the inner world had been with you throughout. It had been, you discovered it in childhood. Um, uh, but there were these twin themes, really, from early on of the inner world, but also deep social justice engagement. Um, very powerful experiences of uh, what had happened uh, with the African slave trade and the African diaspora into the New World the nature of the initiation of the uh, transatlantic slave uh, uh, journey, uh, the experience of uh, second sight that gave to uh, uh, African people in the New World. Um, and so uh, as you uh, embarked on, on your work at Drew, um, you also... Um, in 1991, uh, encountered um, a teacher named Alfred Ligon. Tell us about Alfred Ligon. Alfred Ligon um, pioneered a creative space in Los Angeles in 1941, founded the first um, black-owned bookstore in Los Angeles. And he came to Los Angeles to actually go, he and his sister, to go into Hollywood. They were actors in Chicago. And he wanted to continue his acting career. And when he uh, came to Los Angeles, um, he encountered um, the Theosophical School. And he started to um, be interested in theosophy and, and particularly the text, the Aquarian Gospel of Jesus the Christ. After reading the book, he became open to a form of initiation that had to do with the um, relationship of 
sold to the, what you call the Aquarian Age. The text was a translation of the, from the Keshek records of some um, aspects of, of uh, Jesus' initiation. Translation by whom? By Levi, from Mr. Levi. And it utilized uh, viewpoints that were not necessarily consistent with the Christian biblical recording of Jesus' story because it added his journeys in India and China and other parts of the world. And meetings with the sages, um, these seven sages that um, were to become part of uh, a new world thought for this age that we're in. And so there's a certain kind of, of, of teaching around the spiritual streams that at some point will converge. And so Alfred Lagan wanted to um, engage this as a deeper study, so he formed the Aquarian Spiritual Center. Um, in preparation for uh, the work that would hold his, his legacy. And particularly the text, the Aquarian Gospel of Jesus the Christ. Now, when Ligon came to Hollywood, uh, it was a time of, uh, in the 40s, a time of intense cultural activity, yeah. both in the African-American community but also in the esoteric spiritual community. And he was a student of some of the great spiritual teachers in Los Angeles at that time. Yes. Yeah, he actually came in the 20s. I'm sorry. In the 1920s. Yeah. And so what was happening in, 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 in America in the 20s on the East Coast of the United States, particularly Harlem, was the Harlem Renaissance. Mm -hmm. The Harlem Renaissance was the artistic, creative edge of the soul after reconstruction. And so there, there's, a, there's a way in which um, uh, particularly Langston Hughes and Zora Neely Hurston and others who formulated a collective to engage advancing the soul work through the artistic and, mm -hmm. and literary mm -hmm. tradition. <laughs> On the West Coast, um, and those who were coming to come to the West Coast had to do with still with the arts because um, parts of of Los Angeles was still uh, growing, and by the forties it became um, South Central Los Angeles and Watts in particular was the cultural hub for um, for blacks mm -hmm. and whites, but mm -hmm. but blacks artists mm -hmm. were coming there. So in, when, for the bookstore, it was a central space for many of the significant writers um, that came to Los Angeles. Um, most including, of the poets, including. Uh, Richard Wright, um, Maya Angelou, uh, and later in the, in the 60s, John Coltrane. So they were all mentored by him. Hmm. Uh, Alex Haley. Uh, the, the, in, in fact, the, the uh, Roots was actually... Uh, uh, debuted at his uh, bookstore. Yes, yes. Yeah. The release of Roots was at yeah, the yeah, bookstore yeah. in Los Angeles. And um, but this, the, what 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 was being created, um, and the people with whom Dr. Lagan studied, he joined the the Sabian Assembly with uh, Mark Edmund Jones, and was also part of the Brotherhood of Light, um, a theosophical group that worked more so out of the Alice Bailey School. And traditions, and uh, with, as well with Manly P. Hall in 
in Los Angeles. Mm -hmm. Dr. Lagon found that, that in the, the 20s and 30s, and I think also in the 40s, uh, uh, the work of uh, pioneering African-American um, abolitionists by the name of Pascal Beverly Randolph, who was uh, the head of the Rosicrucian Society in North America. Now he was a fascinating man. Yes, um, a black man. Free man. Free man. Mm -hmm. And the highest, uh, we say, esoteric initiate at that time, moving between Europe and the United States. Traveled as a young boy, on uh, on at working on boats all over the world. Yes. Visited India, I believe. Vis India, Egypt, um, Europe, and, and the, the Arab world. Mm -hmm. Really, in searching and working with the uh, mystery schools in those mm -hmm. areas of the world. So a seminal figure. Yes. And there is a biography of him. There is a biography. By whom? Um, Divini, I think it is. Mm -hmm. I can't remember the specific. Mm -hmm. Um, author of that biography. And so he was the highest uh, Rosicrucian figure, black or white, in the United States. Yes. Um, and uh, an intimate of, of Lincoln, I understand. Yes, they, they, they knew each other around um, 1850. Mm -hmm. I think they met around 1851. Uh, Randolph was born in, in 1825. Mm -hmm. And um, what Randolph was beginning to, to create in the United States was, was the Rosicrucian Society, but he was also um, uh, a, a pillar in the societies in Europe mm -hmm. um, and founded ma uh, many of the, we can say, the, the, the brotherhoods and the lodges in, mm -hmm. in Europe mm -hmm. as well. Um, was a contemporary of Blavatsky, Madame Blavatsky, and in, in a sense, uh, found it very controversial between their form of theosophy and what he was integrating, which was the African Gnostic mm -hmm. tradition. They had a falling out. Spiritualism, yes. They had, yeah. they had mm -hmm. differences about mm -hmm. views. One is that they didn't want to acknowledge a black man as having that kind mm -hmm. of mm -hmm. gift in the world. And also he was integrating the African experience in ways that were threatening to right. them. Mm -hmm. So he actually told Lincoln about the future of blacks in America. Uh -huh. mm -hmm. Emancipation of slavery was not just a political factor. Mm -hmm. It was built on principle that blacks had to be integrated into freedom mm -hmm. if America was to be what it was. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And Rand Randolph and Lincoln worked very closely in Philadelphia on a committee that they were, they were forming about this Rosicrucian mandate to make sure that after emancipation, that the rights and privileges not only be political, but it also go into the spiritual lodges. Mm -hmm. So Randolph formed the first lodges for freed blacks after emancipation, some of whom um, went into the development of the work of founding Liberia mm -hmm. in West Africa, out of those lodges. So, um, when you met Ligon, what was the experience? Who did you see in front of you? Well, I, I an old sage, uh, uh, extremely, I, I was at, a, at a, um, a study group with one of his students, Dadisi Sanika, 
this was in 1990, 1991 when I started there. And uh, by 1992, uh, Dadisi then introduced me to Dr. Lagan. And we went to the first um, uh, lesson at the Aquarian Gospel Temple. Which was at his home? I was home. An old Victorian kind of rundown on Martin yes. Luther King Boulevard. Exactly. <laughs> and um, that place had seen a lot of people uh, coming through for, for study. But it was a Sunday, and uh, he gave the lessons on, on, on Gnosticism. And when I asked, well, how can I be part of this and study with you? And he told me, well, the course to go through the entire curriculum will take 20 years. And I said, well, sign me up. I'm ready to do this. <laughs> One is that it was a significant kind of commitment. One that he was already in his 80s. And to say, that, okay, 20 years, I like that confidence <laughs> that he had. And I didn't see anywhere else to go in terms of the kind of learning that I wanted to do. You felt you'd found your teacher. It, yes, he was my yeah. teacher. Right. He this was. was the one you'd been waiting for. Yes. Yeah. Yes, and he began to um, prepare me to, to engage mm -hmm. um, the soul recovery. Mm -hmm. And in the course of time, uh, he began to recognize that you were his successor, that you were the one who would carry on his work. Well, in 1992, um, the, a different kind of fire came to Los Angeles. That's right. In 1992, the riot started, and um, over 3,000 buildings or such got burned in those, mm -hmm. in those few days of rioting. And it, it, it ignited um, a search for a different kind of civility, a different kind of agreement. And the Aquarian bookstore got burned in that riot. Was one With of all books. his collection... A large collection. Was Thousands of volumes yes, of, yes. of very precious books. Yes. And um, it changed his, his life circumstances significantly. It was also a source of income for him and the center as well. The fact that it was a meeting place. Now, the bookstore was separate from his house by a right. few blocks. Yes. His house did not burn. The house did not burn. But the bookstore burned. Yes. Yeah. Yes. And so the community um, wanted him to... And now this was, the bookstore has been since 1941, so it was a significant space culturally. And um, the community wanted him to rebuild. And he received donations of books from libraries and bookstores all throughout the city. And um, he thought he was going to reopen the building and started the process of that. And when I started... Um, maybe three years after the, the bookstore was burnt, to work more directly with him on that process. Um, we found that he, he was already beginning to move much further than just rebuilding. He was beginning to think in the long-term transition of the center. And so he asked if I would consider um, becoming director of the center after his death, and he would prepare me to do that. He'd asked me to, to choose a form of initiation. And he presented um, Alice Bailey's um, initiatory structure to ask me to choose one of those seven rays of initiation. And um, the one that I chose was the seventh ray, 
and it was part of abs um, part of absolute sonship. Absolute sonship. Mm -hmm. Now, I I just it was just an intuition, <laughs> and um, then I when I presented it to him, and uh, he sat in silence for a while, and then he said, "Okay, I will initiate the path with you." And one of it, it had to do with a form of um, transmission of knowledge, uh, prophetic knowledge. So it had to do with the mysteries, of the star mysteries, as it's called, and the star beings that's connected to um, what we call astrology, the sphere of, of consciousness where human beings could be initiated into prophetic futures. And so he began to tell me more about this path. And one quality of it is being um, embodied with the qualities of light from these beings to be able to transmute, transform um, experiences, not just for myself, but with others as well. And to allow their light bodies to be the means through which we communicate. And so the preparation that he would, would, would allow me it was to sit on his right side when he was lecturing and, and so that I would be in direct contact with his cognitive flow and that if he would forget something, he expects me to know what he was going to say. And so we had this practice in which he would, he would say, you looked at me and asked, uh, what is this idea about? And I would have to fill in the thoughts. But it was more of, a, of being able to be in, in reach of the logos sphere that allows us to, to create thoughts. We can unite on the sphere whereby we can have a shared understanding of something to the degree that, that um, well, that's the first level of agreement, to be in the shared understanding above our individual kind of reference point for what we communicate. And so this is what sonship was. And I later, um, in, my, in my work research, found that it was the cognition that Lazarus um, experienced that led to Lazarus's death. Say more about that. Well, Lazarus realized the nature of Christ before Christ revealed his own um, sacrifice, his own initiation, which is the mystery of Gagoth, the sacrifice. And so when Lazarus died, um, his sisters came to Jesus and said, um, our brother just died, will you? If he, if he were there, he would, you would have been able to save him. And Jesus said, yes, I knew two days ago that he died. But take me to him. Show me where you had buried him. And he said, I want you to know that he didn't die of anything of this world. But he died to prove who I am. And this is a certain way. The cognition is to cognize the Christ nature. Not in just in the world, but in another human being. And you feel a, a very deep connection we've talked about to the Lazarus story. Yeah, because this initiation is the Lazarus story. I see. The seventh ray is Lazarus's story. I see. 
it is to be able to, to experience the resurrected body. The, resurrect, the, the force that resurrects is the force of the seventh ray. But in addition to the initiation, you've had repeated experiences that have drawn you uh, through synchronicities and direct experiences into the Lazarus experience beyond the initiation. So, so the, 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 the path that I was asked by, by, by right. an exercise that we had to do for the Aquarian Spiritual Center was to create a personal myth. Mm-hmm. Now, it was, I, in high school I did it about this mm-hmm. kind of myth, but now to make it more to why mm-hmm. I was born. Mm-hmm. Oh, my birth sign, to take my birth sign. and So I, I have to meditation on, on um, my birth sign, cancer. I began to enter into this uh, vision, and I began to write what I was uh, cognizing in the vision of a child born under this astrological constellation, um, alignment, planetary alignment, and a full moon. And this cycle happens every 300 years. And whenever a child is born under that constellation, um, they're called either a grandmother or a grandfather, which meant someone who is in relation or knowledge of their previous incarnations or, in a sense, bringing the full memory of the soul with them. And so I started to write that this, this, this was a seventh birth of, of such an individual under this full moon into this nomadic group of people and that uh, two weeks after the child was born, um, it was take, he was taken away by these spiritual beings and did not return to the group until 14 years after. And at age 14, he was given the instruction to create the seventh shrine. And they left, uh, the vision ended with them leaving, walking away with him to go and create the seventh shrine. And so I, um, now that was before I had chosen the seventh ray initiation with Dr. Khan, because that was very at the beginning of my study in the Aquarium Center. And um, so I, I always kept it in mind, what, what is the seventh shrine? And um, intuitively I chose the seventh ray as a kind of um, connection and then uh, understanding that this, this form of cognition was not just from the standpoint of, of, of gnosis, but it was connected to the um, Memphite theology in Egypt that had to do with the kind of initiations for um, being able to read hieroglyphic script and utilizing the symbolic knowledge, uh, which is in Christian hermetic tradition. So in some way, Lazarus was the beginning of the Christian hermetic tradition, a way of, of entering the sphere of, of future for something to come into the world now. So what, what, how, why he died, this was the initiation whereby, because he, 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 he left, became a being of light to the degree that his physical body which, which could not possess 
the, the light because the initiation of the Christ had not yet happened. Something had to be done on earth before that initiation could have been valid. Mm -hmm. And so uh, after um, Jesus was crucified, his spirit self went into the earth to create these fundamental um, Well, open those seals again, so that people could be in the agreements on earth, all the way to where there can be a sun being on earth, because that was a sun initiation of the Christ mystery. So sonship had to do with utilizing, creating agreements whereby a, a being, those beings of light could actually be in human <coughs> beings' relationships and work. And that was what I had chosen to do. And part of, the, um, part of that is working with these Lepika lords, as Alice Bailey called them. These had to do with um, karmic beings that would um, allow human beings through dialogue to transform their history. And, or make a new agreement that something that is um, possible on a, we say, a miraculous level, can actually happen by the agreements we made. And um, so there was just one uh, relationship, one, one practical example of that. There was a friend who, who, a young man, I was going to work one day, and he, um, he called the office to ask if I was there. And I, um, I met with him because I felt the impulse to go back to the office. I met with him, and he told me he thought he was going to die. Um, at that moment, when, before he called, my, called, called me, he was actually um, considering suicide. So homicide, suicide. He, wasn't, he had conflicts with these other gang members, and he wasn't afraid to die in confronting them. And he summoning told him to call and see if I was at the office. And I spoke with him, and he came over, and we resolved some of the conflict that he had. But he also felt that his life was on a tra trajectory that he was going to die. And when we investigated, everything said yes to that. He had no true deep commitments to the. He had uh, th three children at that time. He just didn't feel connected to them. He was 24 years old. And so I asked if we, he would allow me to do a ritual with him, an affirmation, to hold a different intention for the future. And I asked, well, is there someone that you love that you could want to live for to the degree that you feel that impulse? And he did not feel connected to even the children in that way. So I asked him, well, would you allow me to hold that future for you, to love that future for you? And he said yes. So I, I invited some friends in, and um, we did a circle with him, and we did an affirmation. And I asked him, all you need to do is to just, even if it's one time a day, to come with me to hold the agreement. I traveled um, out of the country, and when I came back, um, I went to the office, and this was in Watts, and they told me he was shot. 
And in the vision that he had, was, he was having these dreams, these, that of seeing himself in a, in a casket. So this is why he thought he was going to die. He was seeing his funeral. And um, so he was shot. And uh, the friend who told me he was shot said, well, he's now home. Just three days later, he was now home, and um, I can go and see him. So I went over to his home, and he opened the door. And I thought, okay, well, he's home three days after surgery. May, it may not be that serious. And so I asked him what happened, and he raised his shirt, and there was an open chest wound all the way down the length of his chest. And uh, my, I've been into surgery. I've seen a lot of gunshot surgeries at the hospital and thought, why are you home after three days? And most of how can you stand after three days of open chest surgery like this? And so he told me that what had happened, that he was going to get lunch one afternoon and a car drove up with guys from another neighborhood and shot him seven times in the chest. And he collapsed and went into unconsciousness. Um, when the paramedics came, and they tried to resuscitate him and couldn't. And on the way to the hospital in the ambulance, he heard them say to the hospital, he's dead. They pronounced him dead in the ambulance. And he thought to himself, no, I'm not dead. And he remembered the agreement we made and decided to revive his body. So they found vital, vital signs and rushed him into surgery, started the surgery, and um, again, after some of the bullets were taken out, he lost consciousness. They pronounced him dead a second time. And this time now he was with these beings, engaging some experience with them where his love forces, his life forces were being awaken and you may have heard this kind of story before where a person wants to stay on that side and they said no you have to go back and he came back they found vital signs they continued surgery they'd taken six of the bullets out and then they he lost it again he lost consciousness and they pronounced him gone a third time and this time he would now had seen all the people his family and friends who had come to the hospital and he wanted to live for them. He saw them crying and felt the compassion for them. And came back to his body. And the, the doctors actually terminated the surgery. Um, the seven bullet is still in him. And um, he checked himself out of the hospital on this day. On the third day of this. Yes. He, he just didn't feel ill. He just felt strong enough to walk home. And... Um, so he turned, asked me what I thought happened. <laughs> and um, I was just in awe that this occurrence, what I knew the affirmation, was to live. And so this was a kind of verification of this Lazarus mystery, a, 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 its connection to these beings of light and how far they are willing to go to restore and transform the human being. Now, was it also in 1991 that um, you connected with uh, Dr. Ted Smith? Was that that same year, or do I have that wrong? 
Um, Tim Smith, uh, around the same time, yes. Do Dr. Tim Smith. Tim Smith, yes. Right. Uh, and he introduced you to anthroposophical tradition, is that correct? Yes, yes. I, I started the conversation with, 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 with Tim and his wife, Eva, around their work that they were doing at one of the Waldorf schools in Los Angeles mm -hmm. in early childhood. I was beginning to do the research um, with the uh, Franz Fanon Center around an intervention for children who had been exposed to violence in one of the um, elementary schools in Los Angeles. And so we started the conversation uh, around uh, Waldorf pedagogy mm -hmm. and how it informs the kind of development that could um, allow a child to find normative spaces of being. And, um, but I just love the conversations that we were having together and we spent a, a number of number of um, nights in conversation around anthroposophy and Rudolf Steiner's work in particular. And um, Dr. Lagan had, a, uh, in his library, he had a large collection of, of Steiner's books, but he didn't present anthroposophy directly. I mean, theosophy was more where his focus his tradition. was, his tradition. Through your work with uh, uh, Dr. Smith and his wife, um, uh, and your immersion in that, that led you three years later to a conference on the philosophy of freedom, Rudolf Steiner's great book, on the 100th anniversary of that book being published, if I'm correct, uh, at the Rudolf Steiner College in Sacramento. Uh, and um, you talk about how at that conference, uh, Dennis Klocek, uh, one of the senior people, as I understand, welcomed you. He said, welcome, brother. Uh, and you attended a, a lecture and then a workshop with Friedman Schwarzkopf. Yes. Please tell us about that experience. Mm -hmm. Well, Tim, Tim had the, the, the uh, very strong intuition to, that we should go to this conference. And I'm glad I did, because it was, in a certain way, meeting another group of teachers, mentors, and meeting the Rosicrucian stream directly um, as a kind of next initiation path. That evening, uh, when Dennis said, uh, you know, welcome, brother, I felt, I felt truly connected to him as a continuity of some form of my life. Didn't know how or why or what it was. And um, the presentations were on the philosophy of freedom that Rudolf Steiner articulated as a way that a person could be aware of the faculties of consciousness that um, creates reality as such. And that we can participate in the spheres of reality um, where it's prepared and bring it into the world as capacities, and then in certain ways, not just individual capacity, but social capacity. And so this, this framework as they were presenting um, this, this body of work in anthroposophy, I, I again felt, okay, this is another door opening, another set of tools to, to build this cognition practice. And so, um, Friedemann Swatchkoff, 
who presented that night. Um, there were several people, um, Richard Tarnas and Robert McDermott and many others who were there presenting on their kind of connection to anthroposophy and Western initiation. Uh, I felt this is another creative space. So I stayed um, for the workshop the following day and Friedemann Swatchkoff, who was a German philosopher and uh, uh, founded the Goethean Science um, program at the Rudolf Steiner College. And uh, I thought I would take his workshop because um, he was speaking on the logos and the word. And I made a couple of remarks during the workshop and both times he stopped for a few moments and was in this real quiet reflection space before he continued. And I thought, okay, maybe I shouldn't be saying too much because it's, it's keeping him you know, in this space for so long. And then um, after the workshop ended, uh, he came to me with a book and said, you know, both times you spoke, the Holy Spirit entered the room. And I feel connected to who you are. And this book is from my friend, um, Georg Kulovin, who was a Hungarian mystic that Friedemann translated some of the works for him. And it was called Thinking of the Heart. And this was the gift to begin to be conscious about the use of this five-year-old intuition that I would follow my heart. Now here was a, a knowing how to do it. And people who do it consciously as a practice. And so Friedemann invited me into a relationship of work with him and uh, study. And I studied with him 10 years in phenomenology and uh, power of the word and using cognition um, in ways that could allow nature and culture to be revealed in deeper ways that it could. And where the human being in dialogue can move realities between spiritual world and the physical world. In subsequent years, Rudolf Steiner himself came to you twice in inner experience. Can you describe those two encounters with Steiner? Well, I, I, I became interested in Steiner's conception of the human body and particularly um, oriented towards medicine. I still was interested in medicine. I was, um, even though I then continued my allopathic medicine studies, I went, still was doing research in healing. And Steiner presented a view of healing that I felt was important to follow. And so the text, uh, Fundamentals of Anthroposophical Medicine, was very important to me. I was doing some work as well with the um, teacher development courses in the Waldorf school community. So I was working with, having studied with, with Friedemann in phenomenology and such, and Gertie in science, I was um, working in training, teacher training within the Waldorf schools. And so I was invited to Boulder, Colorado to one of the Waldorf schools conferences. And one afternoon I was resting and um, in waking up, I woke up in 
an auditorium. And I thought to myself, how did I <laughs> get here? I know I was in bed a moment ago. And um, sitting in the auditorium in this vision, um, a group of people waiting for a lecture. And they were uh, uh, sitting, and the woman who was sitting beside me um, asked me, well, how did I come into knowing about Rudolf Steiner's work in anthroposophy? And I told her I had read the book, um, Fundamentals of Anthroposophical Medicine. And uh, she asked me well, what I thought about it. And I said, well, um, it's incomplete. There are things that he did not write. And she thought I was uh, you know, being facetious or rude or something, like, how, how dare you say he, he doesn't do incomplete things, you know? this kind of sentiment. And um, so, but she was intrigued to, to think what, what I was talking about. And she asked, well, can you tell us what it is that he left out of the book? And I thought to myself, oh, okay, I will, um, I'll share a few things. And then they asked me to go up to the podium to tell the whole group. And I got there and um, um, I saw someone walk from the back of the room, sitting at the back of the room, and he walked straight up to me and um, took my hand. And I realized that the others could not see him. And he took my hand and without speaking, transmit the thought, don't tell them, it's not yet time. And I made an excuse and, <laughs> and did not share what it was. And as soon as I um, stepped off the podium, I woke up, sitting up in the bed. And um, even then, I was trying to remember what it was I was going to tell you. <laughs> I would love to know it myself. <laughs> and um, so I just held that experience. I, I didn't share it much at all. And, um, wondering what it is that he had wanted me to see. And then the second, the second experience was um, 10 years, um, uh, five, well, in 2005, in Mississippi. Um, I was at one of these evacuation places where they were working with after Hurricane Katrina. And um, the Rosicrucian veil opened I had finished giving a lecture, I had just two days earlier given a lecture um, in Memphis, having visited where the space where Dr. King was killed. Um, the Lorraine Motel, I was there and went into an experience of receiving um, this uh, vision of Dr. King's work, where it is now. And when I came out of the experience, um, the talk I gave to the group that was uh, on this tour of the, that, that part of the country, we were five states that we were going to, five cities. And um, what I talked about was the Rosicrucian mandate in, in relationship to the African Gnostic stream meeting that. And Dr. King was a representative of that impulse of trying to articulate something that um, in the founding of the United States was laid as a kind of criteria. Both the, um, the African contributions to it, but also what the Rosicrucian work was to bring. So when I was in Mississippi, I was still carrying this experience of Dr. King and um, 
started to feel very sick one night, and I thought I would go to bed early. So I went into the tent that they had set up for us and was lying in bed, and this being presented himself and asked if I would like to see what these future economies of the world look like. And I said, yes, I mean, I, if you want to show me, sure. <laughs> and we went up into a sphere of, above the earth, and we were going all over the world and seeing human communities in a different kind of practice. The, the world didn't look very much different than it is, but people were communicating differently. And I thought to myself, wow, the economy is in their communication. How we communicate determines what we share. And I left with that kind of truth of that. And so that being left, and then this other appearance came. And, um, and I was saying, I mean, this is too much, you know. And when I observed, it was Steiner, Rudolf Steiner, and um, he just said, it is now time, and left. He just As opposed to the first time when he said it was not time yet, yes. and this time he said it was now time, which gave you permission to share this teaching with the world. Yes, and the visitation. I, I, I didn't share the fact that I had this appearance of him before. Right. And um, yeah, so when he left, uh, third third presence came, and this one was such a powerful force of light that thus the appearance alone was a question to me, and I thought I better say yes or I'm going to die because it was tearing me apart. It was completely. And I just remember sitting up on the bed and saying, yes, I'll do it. Whatever Steiner said it was time for, whatever this economy vision was, that it was time to begin. And so when I said yes, the uh, <coughs> being stopped and dissolved back into the night space. I got up, I got dressed, put on my shoes, and I was so, f I mean, I had fever and all. And I walked out into this beautiful moonlight and thought to myself, this is getting <laughs> um, very complicated. I mean, from, from Memphis, which was extraordinary, to going to presence of Dr. King in, in another reality, him articulating the work that he was in, in Agape. And then um, the subsequent events, I... I decided to cut my trip short. I told the group I was leaving, and I flew back to Los Angeles. But I went to my library and um, my bookshelves, and I thought, I, who is this third present? What? And um, so there's one book that Tim had given me earlier, and I took it out. And it was an anthology of Christian Christ. And I turned the pages, and there was a photograph that Rembrandt had painted of Christian Rosenkreis, and I saw who the third person was. And later I learned through, through some conversations with people that, that present uh, encounter with Christian Rosenkreis often might be even a brush with death for some people. It's, it's almost like you could. 
um, fall into that other side of reality. And um, so the yes was in a certain way to enter directly into the initiation stream. And I had the um, privilege of being prepared by um, Friedemann and Georg Kulovic to enter into that form of work in the, um, the deeper regions of the earth. And this is what I found that this stream had to do with the continuity of the work of the mysteries of Golgotha. When the Christ being went into the earth, this was to give human beings access to certain powers of agreements to be able to create future economies. But the only way to enter that is love for um, these futures. And so this is what Dr. King was preparing. And he articulated it the night before he died. He articulated an, a future economy that um, was to be fulfilled because he had gone through these um, soul evolutions from Egypt all the way through to the current time. And that the second half of the 20th century was a crossing into this new age of humanity. And this is what the, the vessel of the Aquarian Spiritual Center was, to be a school about the right use of, this, um, of these spirit resources of these spiritual streams and the age of humanity, whereby certain new forms of covenants can be made. And so this is that, that night from 2005, um, my interest deepened around um, the the social economies of our world and the social agreements that can allow um, an expansion of uh, meaning around what we do economically. And the places in the world where the emerging economy can be perceived in human, you know, human substance. So it's in human beings first before it's actually literally in the world. Orland Bishop, that's a good place to complete our second hour of conversation. And when we return, we will continue on the journey together. Thank you very much. Thank you, Michael. Thanks for hosting.